Can you imagine what it feels like to be a Canadian soccer player as Peter Pendergast blows the whistle? It's official. Canada 2000 Gold Cup champions. How does that sound? You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Neff. Yes, it's episode 35 of the Northern Football Podcast. I'm Peter Galindo with Thomas Neff ahead of another massive window for the Canadian men's national team as another squad announcement is upon us here, Thomas. Yeah, that's right, Peter. We're going to preview uh, what we think will be that squad as well as some comments, take some questions, which we received a lot of them as well. Just want to say thanks, thanks to everyone for uh, obviously listening to the show and obviously received a lot of nice compliments from last interview and a couple of uh, recent uh, reviews on Apple. So make sure to that and uh, happy birthday to uh, Alfonso Davies. Yes, that's right. Turns the ripe old age of 21 today. Shocking that he's still that young, but anyways, I digress. Uh, as Thomas said, uh, and this transitions me nicely. Thank you once again to everybody who did give us a rating on Apple, which reminds us, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episodes, and don't be afraid to leave us a rating and review on Apple as well, if that's your platform of choice. And the Northern Football Podcast is, of course, partnered with Northern Tribune, so for all of your Canadian soccer news and analysis, check out northerntribune.ca and follow them on Twitter at North Tribune. Beginning first with the men's national team, as we are a few days out from the squad announcement, we will go through our predictions later, but first we'll answer some of your questions, listeners. So the first one from Bean at Bean underscore talks underscore with a comment slash question here. Uh, we play best in the three, five, two. I would like to see Akinola, a battering ram and David free roaming, build a relationship. Laren and Cavallini already have a relationship and would be the backup pair. Cavallini has not been the same since 2019. I find Laren and David are too similar. Your thoughts. Uh, Thomas, what are your thoughts to to all of this? A, a lot to digest, but uh, not bad suggestions. Yeah, well, I do think that the 3-5-2 has been our best um, position. Uh, I understand the, the, the comment about Akinola. He's, uh, he's injured. Um, but when he comes back, I would assume, that... is, is what he means. Right, right. When he comes back, which I think we'll have a, a difficult time coming back into the national team. But yeah, I mean, David and Laren are, you know, somewhat similar. I think what really stands them apart is that David is just, and speaking specifically about David, there's not too many players in the world right now, only five or six, who have more goals than him in top five leagues. But Laren gives you that sort of experience that maybe David on the wing might not be able to give you. We really miss out David in this last window. But the reason why, you know, guys like Tatum Buchanan had to step up is because Herman has sort of coached this team so well and he sort of perfected the system so well that even if one guy comes out, even if they don't have that much chemistry, he's still sort of able to be a like-for-like replacement. So that's that's what I would say. Well, the, the partnership itself is not a bad suggestion at all. Um, I, I could see it working whenever Akinola comes back into the fold and he's obviously match fit and he's playing every week and whatnot. Because Akinola's off-the-ball movement in the box, I think, would be very conducive to how Canada plays, especially when you have the wide players drifting inside and trying to find those killer through balls. But I actually disagree with the suggestion from Bean that Laren and David don't work together. I think they do. And you look at the majority of Laren's goals that he has scored, they've usually come with David as his strike partner. And John Herdman has mentioned many times 
certainly in October, that David missed that Laren-type mold with him. And that's why he was able to probably have his best game of the window against Panama with an actual strike partner when Alfonso Davies was deployed up front. But Laren and David as a partnership, they alternate together. One drops deep, one stays more advanced. Five or ten minutes later, they might switch roles. That allows Davies and Buchanan to drift inside and combine with them. It's just all very fluid. So having that ability to morph and and play in different roles, I think is what makes that partnership work well together. But an Akinola-David partnership in the future would be very much open to that. Another question from uh, Stefan Jordan. Have you heard the interview The Athletic did with John Herdman? If so, what did you think? So to the listeners who missed it, John Herdman was on The Athletic Football Podcast with Mark Chapman, and it was a very long, wide-ranging interview kind of talking about his uh, start in coaching and going through the women's program and, and what he did in New Zealand and now what he's doing with the men. Uh, some of the highlights included Herdman sort of, and, and I think this was quite subtle, and, and he tends to do this from time to time, but taking a shot at everybody who critiqued his initial hire on the men's side. But he also confirmed that he had interest from England and the CSA wanted to keep him. And he suggested that the only thing he could do was, and I'm directly quoting him here, help take the men's game forward because, and once again, quoting him here, um, he understands what was needed in order to do that. Herman discussed the fact that um, if Canada qualifies for 2022 and obviously 2026, which they should automatically do so, they are going to get a massive windfall from FIFA of about a total of $30 million or $15 million in each qualification cycle. And that was a major motivator for him just to get the money in, help out the grassroots side of the men's and women's games, because they get about $4 million from the government, according to Herdman, uh, every year or so, which obviously has to be divided pretty evenly or, you know, weighed more to one side, depending on which program is, is going to be the most busy. Um, also took some heat from veterans for calling up young players initially and said that they take over, quote-unquote, uh, MLS academies for a couple weeks from the U15s upwards, and they do this in part to show dual nationals they're interested and they care. So if they go overseas, they don't forget that the men's national team is, you know, very much open to bringing them in. So, Thomas, a lot to digest there, but... Uh, what do you make of those highlights? Like, 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 which of those kind of piques your interest the most? Okay, so let's start with the with the first one. the The whole thing about the MLS academies, which has been a hot topic uh, discussed, especially with the national teams that have failed to qualify to many World Cups from now on. I actually did read a couple of years ago that he was, you know, you know, consulting with this MLS academies. Obviously, they are private academies, so. It's not like Canada Soccer can tell him exactly what to do, but he was working with them with the Rex program, so that's not really a surprise. The whole thing about the dual nationals, he's done a pretty good job there. He still still needs to do a lot more work, as, as we'll talk about a little later, as, as a player who got called into a European team. Um, but the whole thing about the money doesn't surprise me. He did say subtly, again, in an interview when he was just hired in 2018, the FIFA dollars, the FIFA dollars. Right. And now that, you know, he pretty much said himself, had said himself that $15 million just for qualifying to the World Cup and obviously qualifying twice, $30 million, you can do a lot with that kind of money, especially the fact that you can you can extend that money into several years as opposed to just, you know, $4 million a year that you get from the government, which I would think that money is only good enough just to finance, really, 
um, the men's and the women's national team and, you know, a couple of youth competitions. Uh, but nothing more than that, I don't think. But I think the, the, the $15 million in, 22, in 2022 would do something substantial for the game. And, and yeah, I mean, the whole thing about him wanting to stay in Canada and, and England want, having taken interest in him, I, I think that's pretty much um, known at this point. For sure. And those of us who are plugged in will have heard pretty much all of this. Like I, and I'm sure you as well, Thomas, heard probably 90 to 95% of all of this. Um, but I guess from a fan point of view or even just a general point of view, it is... I guess, somewhat comforting to then hear all these reports and things confirmed from the horse's mouth itself. Um, look, Herman does have every right, I think, to criticize the initial response to him coming over. But at the same time, look, it was a very, very, very unorthodox, unique move, right, that that the CSA pulled off here. And, and no one really understood why. It was very secretive. I think if they had just come out... And had just said, yeah, definitively, this is why he was hired. This is why we're doing this. Then there would have been absolutely no problem. It was the secrecy initially that I think led to all of that coming in. But there was certainly, and Herman touched on this, there was a little bit of misogyny when it came to, oh, can he actually do it in the men's game? Is, you know, it's so much different from the women's game, this and that. It's worked out for him. But you also have to wonder, would he be saying the same stuff if it hadn't gone so well for him this year and, and I guess at times in 2019 would he also still be in a job by by this point who knows but but the rest of it like this is exactly what he's brought in to do he was brought in to basically be that technical director slash you know run everything from top to bottom from the seniors all the way down to the youth and he's doing that and it's good to see that but obviously as you said Thomas does have some work to do when it comes to some of the other dual nationals here that are still in play for Canada. Um, more on that a little later. Uh, Boomer asking, uh, your thoughts on Canada's fine from CONCACAF. To those who missed it, the CSA was fined about $20,000 Canadian for, quote, invasion of the field of play, end quote, in their match versus El Salvador, and for invasion of the field of play, comma, throwing objects and failure to comply with COVID protocol versus Panama. I think it's pretty easy to pinpoint why this happened, Thomas, and, and, and what led to it, but uh, your, your overall thoughts on, on the punishment doled out here. Okay, so I have uh, multiple thoughts on this. Mexico finally getting a two-game ban? That's right. Wow. Yep. Never thought I'd see the day. Uh, El Salvador getting a ban as well for what they did in their home stadium. So here's the thing. There's there's several uh, things to this. It's not just one rap. Let's talk about the Pana game first because that's the most recent one. Saying that Canada failed to comply with COVID protocols, Peter, and everyone listening, I can literally attest to. I was at the hotel of the Panama national team, the El Salvador national team, and the Honduras national team. Yeah, they were following the the protocols, hundred percent they were, but people from outside the national team were able to come in close to, like literally in 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 people's bubbles of that delegation. Hmm. So if Canada broke. Uh, COVID protocols, then what does it say about the rest of the other Central American national teams? Also, yeah. for the whole thing about, you know, objects being thrown in the field, yeah, I, I can see, you know, fans that, you know, threw things. But that needs to be addressed. You know, Canada Soccer needs to either print out some sort of pamphlet or remind people that, hey, you know, you can't do this uh, sort of thing. Maybe it's acceptable in hockey and whatnot and, and other sports, but you can't do it. And, and I understand that the bench clear and all that, but 
yes, it's a small price to pay for, for the 20,000, but people who are not supposed to be in the field for, you know, in the field of play post-match should not be there. Yeah. Flat out. And obviously this is selective, right? They're going to pick and choose who they want to punish because you cannot tell me that every single team in the Ocho is abiding by every single protocol happening right now. Yes, some of the Canadian players met Drake, but you could also kind of argue that was at the end of the window. Does that really count, etc., etc.? The whole thing is just... I never pay attention to these things because, to me, it's just a farce, right? FIFA and CONCACAF and all these bodies will basically decide when they want to punish a team and when they don't. And again, don't be surprised if Mexico gets that stadium ban reduced yet again because, as we've touched on many times on this show, Thomas... Mexico and the Mexican Federation is this region's cash cow. Do you want to bite the hand that feeds you that much? I don't think so. So I think for public perception, giving them a two-match ban is, is seen as, all right, that's not hefty enough, but it's something. And then quietly they'll reduce it to one and then everything's fine again. And then nothing will happen because this will just continue to occur, which is what the unfortunate part is here. Moving on to a question from Mark Carvalho. Um... Is there anything we can do as fans of Canada soccer to encourage undeclared dual nationals to pick Canada? Uh, Thomas, what do you think, if there is anything at all, that the Canadian fans can do on this front? Yeah, flood their Instagram posts with the Canadian flags, telling them to come and join. <laughs> I mean, young players, and, and any players, but specifically young players, they take a look at, at a lot of social media, like a lot. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, more than senior players, just because they didn't really grow up with it. But right. Even players, they'll, they'll say stuff like, oh, we, we, don't, we don't look at that stuff. We, we, don't, we don't listen to the media. Sure you do. Yeah, they all do. They all do. The one thing I'll say, a, a, apart from what you touched on, because I also think showing up to the games and giving the team support, showing that these dual nationals are going to have the atmospheres, like we saw at BMO or those Mexico games at BC Place, does go a long way. But I think the one thing that some people might overlook that they can do, if a player does not choose Canada, we cannot be so critical with their decision because we don't know what goes into their choice. They're young guys with a lot on their plates. Canada's a very diverse country. Not every eligible player is going to pick Canada. That's just the way it is. If you be respectful, players will be respectful back. That's just the way I see it. And it's something that always kind of rub me the wrong way whenever certain guys wouldn't choose candidates. Like, you know what? In that case, move on. Focus on the players that the, that the program already has and be done with it. Moving on to a question here from uh, TFCNU. Uh, do you see Canada holding a U20 camp soon in advance of the U20 World Cup slash Olympic qualifying next summer? And of course, uh, this is going to double as Olympic qualifying that tournament, the CONCACAF Under-20 Championship, uh, and would it make sense to hold it concurrent with a pre-camp for out-of-season senior CAN-MNT players ahead of the January window? Uh, Thomas, we've had our say on this many times, but um, maybe to those who haven't heard it before, what would you like to see the CSA do with the Under-20s? Again, with $4 million, how much can you really um, do in terms of the youth programs? And I actually wouldn't be against this idea of, you know, having a January U20 camp and, and having it alongside the, the men's team, the men's senior team, yes, yes. And, and have it sort of as a, as a sparring, you know? Correct, yeah. I think it would be very, very helpful, you know, for those senior players to have 
a completely different starting 11 to play against and, you know, not get injured obviously, with that high intensity that a couple of days before match day requires. I, well, I agree with you on, on the sparring partners because teams in South America are doing this now where they call up underage players and have them train separately from the senior team, you know, basically be that opponent in training that they can warm up against. And then also on top of this, it gives the under twenties a chance to work out the tactical kinks like playing from the back, which bit the under 23s earlier this year in the back at times, but before the competitive games start, because I can't remember how many times a Canadian youth national team has been undone due to no chemistry or tactical cohesion whatsoever. So it wouldn't be a bad idea even to call up a group of them for every window if the budget allows it and just bring them in, even if it's six, seven, or eight guys from from the Canadian MLS academies. At least those guys will be used to playing with each other by the time those games come around. So for me, it can't hurt, but obviously the budgets are what hinge on this happening. Um, but that's certainly what we would do, and it would make the most sense to give the teams the best chance of success moving on to our squad predictions here um before we dive into a uh, position by position here we actually asked the listeners whether john herman will name any surprises for november and out of just over 220 votes 63 percent of you said no while about 37 percent of you voted Yes, uh, many suggestions for Scott Arfield. Uh, there are also a couple of mentions, interestingly, for Daniel Jebison. But on the flip side, those who uh, among those who disagreed was uh, Jeff Salisbury, who said uh, Herman likes consistency at this point, with Cavallini, Laren, and Hutchinson all returning, and hopefully a healthy Ostakio. What else does he need for two games? Then Eric Potts uh, responded by saying, I'm thinking some young MLS players get some camp experience, presumably Schwanier or Bressa from Montreal as death replacements. He also did point out, and this is interesting, Thomas, um, Wikipedia, whoever edited this, has caused quite a stir on the Voyagers forum. Um, Richie Ennin and Ahmed Al-Gamdi have apparently been called into the November camp on a uh, training basis, but... There really is no sources reporting this, so there really is no credibility. With this in mind, though, do you think Herdman calls up any surprise players or pulls any surprises on us? I don't. Uh, and the reason for that being... So Herman called a 27-man squad for October. But here's the thing, though. Cavallini, Laren, and Hoylet and Hutchinson did not play in that window. So if you subtract the 23 to the 4, that's pretty much a 23-man squad. That was active. Obviously, Borian was replaced by Dane Sinclair. Um, but look, 23 players with in three different cities. Kingston, Mexico City, and Toronto. Now you're going to be playing two games as opposed to three and only two matches. So, and in the same city. Correct. So, 23 players is more than enough. You know, it was more than enough for the three games in three different cities. And now, in this case. So, I don't think he'll pull that anyways. However, I would not be against the idea, as I said before, you know, to, to bring in players training-wise. But again, I mean, a guy like Enin, he's a professional, so obviously playing in the Russian Premier League and whatnot. Um, him, you know, if that source is legitimate, Peter, you know, how would he be able to get permission from his club if it isn't an official call-up, you know, within the squad? But yeah, I really, the, for me, the questions are just, you know, two or three call-ups, you know, on a technical sort of, you know, in defense, you know, do you want to bring an extra midfielder or not? And really, um, if, you know, 
the four group has really stabilized itself, and especially at Cavallini, who's you know really at form. Well, yeah, that's the wild card to me right now. And if I can see any surprise happening, it is someone like Richie Ennen getting a call up. Maybe by some miracle, Daniel Jebison commits and then he comes in. But I think that's far, far less likely. Cavallini is very much out of form and lacking fitness. Uh, he is second choice right now in Vancouver because Brian White is absolutely killing it and has clear chemistry with Ryan Galt. So that is going to be the one caveat here. Jeff does make a good point in that Herdman doesn't like to mess with chemistry. Herdman's also touched on how important Cavallini is to the room. But do you really want to call him up when you know he's not going to be playing at an adequate enough level in place of someone who, all right, Richie Ennen is not, you know, banging in the goals or, you know, racking up the assists at, at Nizhny Novgorod this season. But he's someone who can kind of play that junior Hoylet type role where he can kind of maneuver the ball through those pockets of space, you know, play in a, um, a pass down the wing towards the overlapping fullback and just open up space in general with his dribbling. He would be an asset, whereas I feel Pavellini at this point maybe wouldn't be. So that would be the one potential surprise I would see. But without a shadow of a doubt, we're going to see changes in January without the Americas and Asia uh, being in season at that time. Um, let's get into our predictions now, Thomas. We'll go position by position as we often do. Uh, which three goalkeepers would you call up or I guess at this point expect to be called up? I, I feel like there are probably going to be no surprises here. Yeah, for me, it's a very simple one. Borjan Kripal, Pantamis, Borjan coming back in, and I think Borjan will be playing uh, these two matches. Yep, agreed there. So we will move on to the defense. Uh, who makes the cut for you? So obviously no surprise there. Victoria, Miller, Adekube, Larea, Johnston, Henry. But, you know, if Kennedy was fit and he wasn't injured, I would actually pick him over Cornelius. But because Cornelius... Um, is fit, he's playing games, and he did the job against Jamaica. He will be brought in, I'm sure. Um, and like you said, your point, um, I think James is the next available option if needed. Yes, for sure. And I think if Scott Kennedy was fit, he probably would get chosen over Derek Cornelius, but he's still nursing that injury and uh, may not be back for a little while here. And, and just a reminder, too, the Bundesliga does have a winter break in about six weeks, uh, and the second Bundesliga as well. So... If he's not back before then, it could be a long, long time until we see him again, which could even rule him out until in, in, in January, for all we know. But we'll obviously have to wait and see on that. Um, I have one slight tweak to yours. Um, I had all, all the same guys you listed here in Henry, Vittoria, Miller, Cornelius at centre-back, Larea, um, obviously Johnson's a centre-back option technically, but also a right-back option. Sam Adekubi as well gets in. Zachary Brogiar is my uh, next pick in this regard, just because... He's a guy who I think... So you would go with eight defenders? Then? I would go with eight defenders, yeah. I would go with eight okay. defenders. And the reason for this is, I am going to obviously... I'm cutting down on the amount of midfielders and forwards, which you'll eventually see, but the reason I'm going Brogiar is because Johnston, at times, is going to fill in at right back, but let's say Lorea is playing on the left, Adekubi isn't fit. Like, you just don't know. And I feel Brogiar gives you that more attacking option, like straight-up attacking option on top of Larea, because Larea will get tired. So I feel like having a like-for-like -like replacement in that regard could be very, very beneficial. So that's who I'd choose for defense. What would be your midfield? Yeah, so my midfield, I'm actually going to take six midfielders as okay. opposed to seven, and I'll explain why in my forward group. So it would be Estacchio, K, Osorio, Piet, Atiba, if uh -huh. he does come back in, 
and Fraser. And if Atiba does not come back in, then it's Witherspoon for me. Okay. All right. Um, so I have pretty much the same guys. I also have six here, um, but it's Ostakio, Piet, Hutchinson, Osorio, K, and then obviously Watherspoon is in there, depending on fitness. If not, then you can pretty much call up Liam Fraser, you know, just take your pick at that point. Really no surprises in the midfield at this point. The forwards, I think, is where we're going to differ here a little bit. So who would be your forwards? So I'd be calling up seven forwards, and it would be Davies, David Laren, Hoylet, Cavallini, just because I think that's who Herman will call up based on the experience, uh, not based not based on current form, Buchanan, and Miller. I think Miller, even though he didn't have that much of a big impact, you know, he still, you know, did miss the goal against Jamaica, but at the same time, it was a huge save, and, you know, he's banging in goals for his club team uh, in Basel, Switzerland, so I think he's regains himself, you know, in that national team picture and, and can join uh, the untouchable six. All right, so here's my curveball a little bit. I have Buchanan, Hoylett, David, Laren, and Miller. Those would be my choices, and because I have one extra defender, uh, have the six midfielders, I can only call up those names. But if this is a possibility, I would drop Rogiar and I'd replace him with Richie Ennen. That would make it six forwards, and I just think you then have a nice even amount of, you have a couple of guys who can play on the right, you have a couple of guys who can play up front, and then you have a couple of guys who can play on the left, and then can also play as a second striker if needed. That would be the one surprise I would expect. I'm really doubting that Cavallini gets the call up this time, just because he is lacking fitness, and I think even John Herdman, as much as he wants to keep the chemistry together and the camaraderie together, I think even he has to admit that he's probably not in the most optimal condition right now to play, uh, let alone, you know, obviously to, to start and, and, and potentially make an impact in some games. Yeah, it's an interesting one. But the thing is, if Cavalier doesn't play, then you'd be bringing in a second center forward with not a lot of caps unless Laren were to slide into that role. But again, I mean, David is there. You could play two up front. But, you know, we haven't really seen that from... Well, we have seen that from Herman, but not as of recent... Well, one thing I will say about, you know, the, the lack of center forwards and stuff, you're only playing two games in the same city, and it's four days apart. So David and Laren can shoulder that load, especially Laren, who is still, he's had, what, two, three appearances since he's come back from injury? Like, he hasn't exactly overworked himself yet. So, you know, you say he plays another two, three games up until the, the, the window, I think he'll be in peak optimal condition to be able to play twice in a week. And that's why I would then call up Ennin, because then you can get him into the camp, you can see what it's like, he gets used to the tactics, and then when January rolls around, obviously Russia will be in the middle of their winter break, but he's someone who at least won't be too far removed from playing a competitive game, whereas some of the MLS guys will be, and he could be a very good option, and then by that point, he'll be somewhat integrated into the team, and he'll be familiar with the tactics and whatnot. So that's why I do it. But I really don't expect Cavallini to make the cut just because of his club situation right now. Moving over to some questions regarding Canadians abroad here. Uh, got quite a few of these. We'll start with a question from Van S. Who asked, how long do you think Davies will stay at Bayern for? What next team do you think he would fit best? Uh, he then also asked uh, the same question, but with David and Leo. So Davies first, Thomas, um, how long does he stay at Bayern for, do you think? And then what would be his next team right now? I, I guess hard to predict because the football landscape changes so rapidly every single day. Well, considering that, you know, he is arguably 
the best player in his position um and he is happy at Bayern you know I'd say that he has a he has a long contract and even after that contract expires I would not be surprised if he signs another long-term contract after that right but if you were to leave Bayern per se then there's only a select amount of clubs at the top level that you could actually argue that you know he'd he'd be playing in and, and I'm talking about the Juventuses of the world, the Real Madrid's, the Barcelona, even though they're in shambles right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking about those specific clubs, you know, maybe top three, top four in England. But real, real, realistically, why would he have to move? At the same time, he's he's happy there and, and the club are happy with him. However, David, completely different situation. As I said at the top of the episode, David, he only has only five or six players in top five leagues have more goals than him. And that's remarkable for a team that's in 12th place right now yeah, in Liga. Yeah. So if uh, Lil are not playing Champions League, let alone Europa League next year, then he has to go ASAP because his individual his individual talent and his individual um, achievements this year, records have been exceptional, but collectively Lil has been a disaster. And if they obviously don't get into Europe, I mean, really, they would have to get into Champions League, I think, for for David to probably consider staying another year. Um, then he will probably be sold this upcoming summer for well north of probably 40 million euros. He was bought for 30. Yes, he has three and a half years left on his contract, same as Davies. But given that Lille are experiencing some financial problems, anywhere from 40 to 50 would be quite a bargain for what would be at that point a 22-year-old striker who's still yet to hit his prime. And, you know, you, you said it there, only four players have scored more goals than him in the top five leagues, which are Robert Lewandowski, Mohamed Salah, Karim Benzema, and Erling Haaland. You could argue the four most informed players in the world right now. And then when you look at non-penalty expected goals, David's tied for sixth in the top five leagues with about 5.4 this season or 0.58 per 90 minutes, which is a, an astounding rate for someone who plays for a mid-table club in France And despite the fact he could easily have more quality opportunities if his teammates weren't so goddamn selfish and weirdly hesitant to pass to their top scorer. It it baffles me every time I watch it, but I digress. As for Davies, I agree with you. Could be a Bayern player for many more years. If there was a club who could sign him and would maybe entice Bayern, because look, if they got a massive, massive fee for him, I'm sure they'd be open to selling him. But Really, the only two teams I could see coming in for him at the price Bayern would want. One would be Chelsea if they want an upgrade on Alonso or Chilwell, but that's pretty doubtful at this point. And, you know, if Barcelona can get themselves out of their huge debt, which is easier said than done, they would be the other potential option. But I I just don't see it happening, at least in the next year or so. Um, Obviously, a lot can change, and we'll see. But Davies is probably going to be a Bayern player for quite a while yet david probably this summer as early as this summer he will end up going here's a question about tejan buchanan from aru yan who asked do you think when tejan arrives at bruges he will be thrown into the starting 11 or does he have that ability to do that or does he need time to soak his feet before he can start me personally thomas he'll be out of action for at least two months game wise So I think just based on that alone, he'll slowly be integrated. Then if he shines in training, becomes familiar with the tactics, he will start pretty shortly thereafter. Bruges paid a hefty fee for him that they normally reserve for more established players in European football. So 
You can expect to see him start at some stage pretty soon after he arrives, but probably not right off the hop. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would be surprised if Bruce didn't give him at least a couple of weeks just to for himself. You know, as as a vacation after the MLS season ends. Obviously, his team is one of the best in the MLS and and just won support Shield, so probably gonna do a a pretty good playoff run there. But even with Davies, I mean, Byron just didn't throw him into the fire and and had him starting every single game. And obviously, this is Bruce, and you know, it's the Belgian league. It's it's, it's a much smaller quantity. But, you know, give him our, you know, a run of games where he's placed 20, 30 minutes, and then by the fourth, fifth substitution, then you could say, okay, this kid is ready uh, for his first start. All right. Uh, moving on to a somewhat similar question here from Leafs Chirp, uh, who asks, are there any teenage potential players that could rival Davies, David, or Buchanan right now? The first thing that comes off the top of my head would be Lucas Diaz because he's one who probably has the highest ceiling. He's in the right setup right now. He's on the precipice of making his first team debut at sporting at 18. He's someone who I think could end up reaching those kinds of heights and wouldn't shock me if he does. Do you have any potential suggestions? Uh, Maybe Smith, just because the fact that he's making made the bench a couple of times for Nice and Nice turned second place of Liga. I mean, that is still, you know, on paper at least, because obviously there's not much footage of him. They're still on paper. Very, very impressive. But again, I mean, there's still so much work to be done at the youth level, uh, as I've said in the past, and and, and really integrating these guys uh, at an earlier age. Absolutely, yes. Marko Mitrovic, the brother of Stefan Mitrovic, um, wants us to discuss... Uh, his brother, Stefan's call-up to the uh, Serbia under-21 national team. So to those who missed this, uh, Stefan Mitrovic has indeed received that call-up as uh, the Serbia U-21s are participating in qualifying for the under-21 Euros in 2023. Not doing too hot in their qualifying group right now, but it looks like Mitrovic, just based on the performances he's had with Radniki Nice, could be due for a debut at the under-21 level. And just very recently, I think even a month or two ago, was playing for the under-20s of Serbia. So based on all the information we have, Thomas, um, I, you know, I know we've spoken to many people about this. What do you make of this situation right now? Yeah, it's no surprise. It's no surprise that he's been called up. Um, we knew that Serbia was interested in him long ways ago, and, mm. and Canada Soccer continues to you know, not talk to his internal camp. And look, I mean, Serbia are a World Cup team. Uh, they made the World Cup in 2018, and they're one of the leagues that exports the most players in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously one of the countries that you won't you won't really think of, but but they are right. And here's the other thing too, like because they're a World Cup team, from time to time you will get really, really, really good youngsters in the youth national teams. Good thing for Mitrovic specifically because he's gonna get a chance to play with good players. And obviously, like you said, they're not doing well. Uh, too well in the UEFA U21 qualifying. But at the same time, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that Mitrovic playing these matches would then require a one-time switch since it is official U21 youth competition. Yes, I believe that is true. Which, look, if the CSA let him walk to the full uh, Serbian senior program, that's inexcusable in my eyes. I, I am still baffled as to why he didn't make the Olympic squad, even at that time because he was one of the few players of that age playing in the European top flight, not 
regularly, but I mean, he had what, 7,800 minutes last year. Like that's a lot more than a lot of those players on the uh, under 23 team can say they had, especially at that level. Now he was on the preliminary squad for the gold cup. You could argue a gold cup call up would have been premature. Although unlike say Theo Corbinu, who made that squad, he was playing top flight football with a first team in a solid European league. So, you know, again, if, if you want to call up a, you know, a young promising up and coming player, Mitrovic would be one of those candidates. Um, he could always change his mind, but look, the longer he continues to, to, to shine in Serbia, and if he can get a move abroad, th- maybe as early as this summer, especially the way he's playing, and Canada fails to land him in January, I think that says it all right there. Yeah, I really think that if he manages to get himself a move abroad to a better league, I and he's playing, I honestly don't see how Mitrovic continues to get ignored. Like, there's just no way. No, for sure. And look, it's up to the CSA, really, because I'm sure he'd be open to the call-up. But the longer he keeps getting ignored like this, then just the worse it's going to get, really. Um, Let's close out the section with this question here from Kieran Gorski, uh, who wants to know, how is Tom McGill doing with Brighton? So Tom McGill, 21-year-old English-born goalkeeper, but um, is eligible to play for Canada, plays for Brighton, with the under-21s, that is. Based on what I've seen of him, you know, pretty calm with his distribution, good at stopping and handling low shots, which is usually quite a solid quality to have for any goalkeeper over, say, six foot, six foot one. A bit indecisive coming off his line at times, which I think is probably the one big weakness he still has to correct. But he is still a decent goalkeeping prospect at 21. I just think he needs to move up a level from the under-21s at this point because he did well against Forest Green Rovers in the Papa John's Trophy, and that was a League 2 opposition. So maybe a, a you know a stint there, maybe even in League 1, could do a world of good for him. Um, but certainly the raw potential is there. Just has to fine-tune some of those aspects in his game, which could probably come by playing at a higher level and maybe working with uh, you know better, more qualified goalkeeping coaches and all that. So let's move on to some domestic matters here involving MLS and the CPL. Uh, CF Montreal is on the outside looking in on the playoffs with two games to go. They are three points adrift in 10th place after a 1-0 loss to the New York Red Bulls over the weekend. Toronto FC earned a scrappy 1-1 draw with Atlanta United in their match with a number of Canadians starting that game, including Julian Dunn, who got his first start in three years mind-boggling that it took that long, but I digress. Uh, The Vancouver Whitecaps square off with LAFC in a pivotal game for their playoff chances on Tuesday night. Many of you will probably know that result by the time you hear this. Speaking of the Whitecaps, though, that they have placed multiple executives on leave as they investigate the club's handling of sexual assault allegations made by former women's player Mallory Enoch, who claimed that ex-coach Hubert Busby tried to solicit sex when... Uh, Enoch was being recruited by the club. Uh, Schuster has reached out to Enoch to apologize to her for the club's conduct and handling of the allegations, which is, you know, quite big of him, especially as someone who's only been there for a couple of years. Uh, MLS is also investigating the Whitecaps as we speak, and former women's players have called for Victor Montaliani to be suspended as FIFA vice president and CONCACAF president until the investigation into Bob Berarda's conduct has been done. So a, a lot to unpack here, but just your, your, your thoughts overall on yet another sexual assault scandal for the Whitecaps and then also, you know, the Canada soccer maybe being pulled into this as well as Montaliani. 
So Montaglana, he was actually the director of national teams uh, when the coach was, you know, coaching the U20 team. So there is absolutely no way in hell that he did not know about this. And obviously, we know that certain news transpire, certain sports, Peter, and obviously, this is a soccer podcast, but it's hard to ignore, you know, the whole thing about the NHL, the Blackhawks, Kyle Beach, and very similar here, a direct superior who had direct knowledge, most likely, how bad does it really need to get in order for you to do, you know, take action, really? Well, Dan Lenarducci sent out, I believe it was an email or it could have been text. I, I can't remember. I have to go back and read the actual Guardian report. He told the players to keep this hush-hush and not to talk about it, which is just deplorable. Um, and, and yet again, it's another cover-up. And it really is unfortunate when, and, and I say this very, very lightly because it's it, it's more than just unfortunate, it's awful, when people in positions of power prioritize money over another human being. And unfortunately, it's happening more and more, and Obviously, this goes without saying, you want it to stop, and you just want people to be treated kindly and to feel safe playing a sport that they love. That's really all it comes down to. And the fact that the Whitecaps once again failed in this regard, Canada soccer failed with Bob Berarda, it's it's really, really depressing and really awful. We will try to move on here uh, to talk a little more about... Uh, MLS and the CPL. Um, David Anthony asked a question here. Um, people like to crap on MLS's relationship with Canada soccer and development of Canadians. I think it's hard to argue against that. MLS has been vital to the ongoing development of Canadian soccer, though. Look at all the MLS players in the national team, too. Your thoughts? Um, lots of good points made by David there, Thomas. Uh, what, what, what do you say to them? Yeah, 100%. Tony knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Uh, no, I think it's 100% true. I mean, without, you know, the MLS, Corpo wouldn't be a starter. Uh, Larea would have probably been released after Orlando and not found a club at that level, at least. We'd have never known what Johnston would have been like, even though right. he came through the NCAA system. You know, even even Adekube got his start uh, yeah. before he moved over to Europe. Uh, Norway, now he's in Turkey. Uh, Henry had his start, now he's playing in, in Korea, and, and he's still a part of the national team. Uh, Kamal Miller, who we just had last week, um, Osorio, Piet, like Fraser, the list goes on and on. So, yeah, 100%. The MLS has been a huge part of this national team and even players who are no longer in the MLS but in other leagues as well, as I just touched on. But at the same time, we have to remind people that the MLS is still an American league. And, you know, yes, you need 23 players to make a national team, at least a, a pool of 30 players. And as long as, you know, the MLS can continue to contribute, you know, Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve players, you know, to that setup, I think, um, is worth it. E even guys like Christian Gutierrez and and, and Zach Brawljalar, who are not in the national team, are still missing out, and, and they're playing regularly for their clubs as well. So, no, it's, it's it's good, but at the same time, it is an American league. It is, but you also see a high number of Americans playing for American clubs now. They come through the NCAA system, do very well. Um, it, it helps to have those opportunities, and it's way more than players had 15, 20 years ago. And that's the important part. It's never perfect, obviously. The, the relationship is not perfect. MLS isn't perfect. But it's providing a platform for these players. And that's what's important. And all you have to do is look at the dearth of options in certain positions. Like, look at right back. Outside of MLS, you have basically Juan Cordova and then maybe Chris Twardek, who is a converted winger and playing in, I believe he's now in Poland, if I'm not mistaken. So, like, that kind of goes to show you how important MLS is to supplying the player pool. 
and, and it is quite ironic that MLS was started to help the American player pool, and it certainly has, but it's also helped many, many regions in CONCACAF on top of that, Canada included. Um, moving on to some matters in the CPL here. The playoff race is red hot with HFX Wanderers really struggling in recent games without their top scorer, Joao Morelli. So as a result, York United is back in fourth, two points ahead of a resurgent Valor and a struggling HFX with a couple of games left for York. So the question now, Thomas, it's in their hands, but they have Forge in both of those games. Do you think York is going to wrap it up or do you think that one of Valor or HFX can still pip them to fourth place? Well, I will say this. York right now are in big momentum. Um, they just beat Pacific, the league leaders, uh, in their own home uh, at um, in Langford. And when they have all things, you know, going for them right now, you know, it looks like Jimmy Brennan might finally make the playoffs in his third season as head coach. So, again, just that I've covered them, you know, since I've been covering them uh, with that Spanish radio it seems like, obviously, they have, you know, a, a day where, you know, they play good and the result doesn't go their way. And they also, you know, don't play as good and they get the result anyways. You know, you have to win regardless, you, either if you win ugly. But over the years, you can't say that their depth has been finally proving as we've recently seen. So it's going to be tough for them. But at the same time, you know, I think Dos Santos, you know, coming into Valor and, you know, changing things there, you know, maybe they could squeak in. It's, it's going to be a tough one. I previously said it was going to be HFX a couple of weeks ago, but Morelli's absence has killed them completely. And the reason I chose HFX was their defense. I trusted it more than York's, and it's capitulated. Now, Morelli did return to training and played the final 20 minutes in HFX's last game, so maybe his late return could maybe buoy them, but it's going to be difficult. Because even though HFX's final game is against Ottawa and Valor has Edmonton, you imagine they take care of business there. But all it takes for York is just to get that one win and then boom, that's it, um, pretty much. So it's really tough. I'm going to give the slight edge to York at this point just because HFX really, really blew it, especially by losing to Valor and bringing Valor back into the race. But it's York's to lose at this point. Obviously, the tougher schedule down the stretch. Regardless, it's in their hands. And if they don't get in, they really do have themselves to blame at this stage. A uh, couple more questions here before we wrap up the show. Speaking of York, uh, CPL 2.0 asked... How high is Lowell Wright's ceiling? I have actually gotten to see a few York United games in person recently. And with Wright, you can see the full soccer IQ on display. He has good vision, solid movement off the ball. The ball just doesn't always get to him, though. And that is the problem. But when you watch him move in and around the box, he's always in the right place at, at, at the right time. The ball just isn't good enough to get to him. Not amazing acceleration, which which hurts him a little bit. But man, when he gets running, good luck trying to stop him because he is sometimes an unstoppable force out there. So I think with all of this put together, next year with you know even more minutes under his belt, it could be the opportunity for him to break through. And, the, and then at that point, who knows? Because he just turned 18 a couple of months ago, which is quite crazy to believe. Final question here from Alex. Uh, which Canadian... CPL players do you think have warranted moves to bigger leagues this season, whether it's MLS or Europe? We, we've talked about this a couple of times throughout the season, Thomas, but uh, the, the, the names off my head that I can think of right now, really Diodine Abzi, possibly Caden Chung, Noah Verhoeven. Yeah, well, uh, just on your previous point, Lowell Wright, still very, very raw, but at the same time, like you say, he has uh, age you know, on his side. I really believe that 
Chung, because, you know, he's getting older and older, his opportunity to play at a higher level is probably gone. For Holman, it's probably more 50-50. But, but Abzi, 100%. It's really a shame that he isn't an European citizen because if he was, I think he'd be in Europe already, as he's shown in, you know, great Canadian Championship uh, performances. But again, it's just so quick on the ball. He, he crosses it in. You know, he could really be a forward uh, for all we know. But it's interesting because that the whole thing about him playing futsal really helped his, his career as he's playing in, you know, shorter, uh, smaller, confined spaces. But he's been really, to me, he's been the shining light of the CPL. And it's it's really a shame that CPL hasn't been able to export more players. But if I had to pick one guy, it would be him. Fair enough. That is going to do it for us this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening once again. We will be back with you next week after the Canada squad announcement, previewing their games against Costa Rica and Mexico as well. So stay tuned for all of that. For Thomas Neff, I'm Peter Galindo. We will talk to you then. <laughs>